I've been preaching the Word of God now for almost 20 years. And I remember when I first started preaching to God's people, I would preach sermons that dealt with the subject of persecution and opposition to Christians. And I remember early on, it just felt all kind of distant, like didn't really apply to us. There was no immediacy in the room or urgency in the room when we heard those kinds of messages. When I preach those kinds of messages. We preach it because it's in the Bible, but it just didn't seem like it really applied to us. Well, times are different, aren't they? And as we see how rapidly things are changing in our culture, and now we look at a passage on persecution or opposition, it causes us to sort of lean forward a little bit. We're a little bit more attentive, a little more urgency, a little more immediacy, because we know that in the coming days, in our nation, there is going to be a very real price to pay for simply following Jesus. And so the message we're going to look at this morning is a message that ought to cause us to kind of sit up and take notice and think through, because there is really um, strong relevance to your life and to mine. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're continuing our study through this New Testament book. Now, just sort of a heads up in terms of our preaching schedule. Uh, We're going to attempt by God's grace to finish chapter 19 and chapter 20 before the end of this month. And then in June, we're going to step away from our study of Acts just for a little while, and I'm going to start a summer sermon series, and it's going to be on the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm excited about preaching that to you. We're going to talk about uh, the, the definition of the Trinity, defending the doctrine of the Trinity, and I want to spend a lot of time this summer focusing on the relevance of the doctrine of the Trinity in our day-to-day Christian living. You'll be, I think, surprised and encouraged by all that this means for you in your day-to-day life. So I'm excited about that. That'll be this summer. But before we get there, we're going to try to finish Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. So look there with me, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. It says, after these events, what events? Revival in the city of Ephesus. The the gospel was spreading rapidly. And it says, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece, and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So eventually, Paul wants to make it to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's going to remain there in Ephesus to continue the work. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. 
and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, your word teaches us that we are to trust you with all of our heart, to lean not on our own understanding, but in, but in all of our ways to acknowledge you, knowing you will direct our paths. And so, Lord, as we study your word together, we acknowledge you, and we acknowledge our need for you. We believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So, Lord, as your word goes forth, I pray that you would accompany your word with the, the power of the Spirit, that our eyes might be opened, illuminated, that we might see the truths of Scripture and have a desire to, to respond to the truths of Scripture. So would you work in mighty, mighty ways in our midst. We are today a grateful people. We're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that our sins have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. We are grateful that there is power in the name of Jesus. And we desire that Jesus Christ be exalted in this moment, that he be lifted up and that we would leave today knowing we've encountered the living God, that we would leave today saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' strong name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we look in Acts chapter 19, we are following along with Paul on his third missionary journey. At the end of his second missionary journey, Paul was in the city of Ephesus and he left Ephesus. And he went to Jerusalem for a while, then he went back to his home church of Antioch in Syria and gave them a report as to what happened on his second missionary journey. And then the church in Antioch sent him back out. I love how Antioch just keeps sending, sending, sending. I want to be a church like that. We keep sending, sending, sending. And Antioch sends him out on his third missionary journey. And Paul basically makes a beeline back to Ephesus. Paul understood that this great city in Asia was a very strategic city. Now, Ephesus had about 300,000 inhabitants, and it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, and it was its most important commercial center. Uh, It had a large harbor, and because of that large harbor, Ephesus grew wealthy on trade. And thanks to the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, as it's sometimes called, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, people would come from all around to visit this city. Now, this temple of Artemis was something to behold. It covered an area four times as large as that of the Parthenon in Athens. It was supported by 127 pillars, 60 feet high. And it stood a little bit over a mile from the center of the city of Ephesus. And as Paul surveys this city, he sees the the commercial uh, impact of this city, the trade that happens in the city. He sees all the visitors coming to visit this temple. Paul sees how this city could be a great location to, 
to spend some time to preach the gospel so the gospel would go forth from this very strategic setting. So that's what he does. He spends over two years in Ephesus. And we see that during his time there, God was moving with power. As a matter of fact, rewind with me back to verse 10 of Acts chapter 19. He's preaching the gospel there to the Jews, also to the Greeks. It says in verse 10, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, That's an astounding statement. Paul is basing his ministry there in Ephesus, and the gospel is spreading from Ephesus in such a great way that all the people in the province of Asia had access to the gospel. Amazing how God is moving here. And then fast forward to verse uh, 20 of Acts chapter 19. Right before this verse, there's a revival. People see the reality of spiritual warfare and they see that they need an authentic relationship with Jesus if they're going to stand against the enemy. And so because of that, uh, there's a great revival as people place their faith in Christ. And it says there in verse 20, after they burn some occultic books as a symbol of their turning to Christ, it says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So God is moving in great ways through the ministry of Paul and his companions in the city of Ephesus. Now, as was the case in other cities along his missionary journeys, the rapid expansion of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, brings opposition. And that's what happens here in our text. As the gospel moves forward with power, opposition increases. And I want to look at with you this morning four truths concerning opposition. I want to see how these truths relate to us. And again, if we were looking at these things 20 years ago, we probably would think, well, this is for someone else in the world. But I want you to understand, these truths are so relevant for us in this room today. And so, four truths concerning opposition to the gospel. First of all, I want you to see that gospel progress is a threat to ungodly commerce. Gospel progress is a threat to ungodly commerce. Notice what the Bible says there in verse 23. About that time, as the gospel's moving forward, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, followers of Christ in the first century were often called followers of the way. It was a designation for Christians. So there was a disturbance that arose concerning Christianity, followers of Christ. It says, A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. So Demetrius is a silversmith, and he made little silver figurines, likenesses of the, the pagan god Artemis or Diana. And he made his living from this because I told you that the temple of Artemis was one of the seven, great, uh, seven wonders of the world, seven ancient wonders of the world. And people would come from all over the world to visit this temple. And when they would get there, they would see these little silver figurines. They would want to take home a, a souvenir. And so he and the other silversmiths were making a lot of money from people traveling to the temple of Artemis. And he gathers the other silversmiths together, and he says to them, Men, verse 25, you know that from this business we have our wealth. We are making money off all the tourists that come to the temple of Artemis. And he says there, And you see and hear 
that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And so Paul would go out and preach the gospel and he would say, listen to me, Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave. And if you, if you want to know God, if you want to have a relationship with God, you must turn from your sins, turn from your false religion, turn from your idol worship, and turn to the one true God through Jesus Christ. And people would hear that message and they would respond. And they would turn from their idolatry. And as more and more people turn from their idolatry, they were buying less and less idols, less and less silver Artemis figurines. He said, this is a problem. He says, there's danger, verse 27, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So he's saying, if more and more people respond to the message of the way, Christianity, they respond to Jesus, more and more people are going to stop worshiping Artemis, and the more people that stop worshiping Artemis, the less buyers we have for our little silver idols. And he's probably the leader of the Silversmith Guild, and he gets them together and says, what are we going to do about this? They saw a very real possibility that they would lose money, that their business would be affected. And what do we learn from that? We learn that when the gospel goes forth into a community, into a city, into a nation, into an area, it is a threat to ungodly commerce. Because people who make their living on sin and vice are going to be affected when less people participate in sin and vice, right? It's going to affect uh, commerce. And when that commerce is affected, the folks that that oversee those businesses are going to respond violently. There will be opposition to the gospel. Warren Wearsby says it like this, wherever the gospel is preached in power, it will be opposed by people who make money from superstition and sin. So let's play the what if game for a moment. What if we all caught fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ and we lived spirit-filled lives and began to share the the good news of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit in our community, in our workplaces, in our schools. And, And the gospel began to spread, and more and more folks got saved, and there were dozens and even hundreds, maybe even thousands of folks swept into the kingdom right here in our area. If that began to happen, listen to me, people that make their money on sin would be radically affected. Right? So what if the gospel moved with such power that folks that are making their money off of evil things have to shut down their business? Wouldn't that be awesome? I said to our sheriff this morning uh, before the first service, I said, you're going to love the message today. Because here's a what if. What if so so many folks were getting saved and turning away from sin and evil that there was a growing number of vacancies in the county jail? Wouldn't that be awesome? Because so many folks are turning to Christ. It can happen. It was happening here in Ephesus. And Demetrius, this man who makes his money off of selling idols, says, hey, guys, we're in trouble. If folks keep getting saved, we are in trouble. And so we see here that gospel progress is a threat to ungodly commerce. It is. And when people that make their money from ungodly things begin to be affected by the spread of the gospel, they will oppose the spread of the gospel. Shouldn't surprise us. 
But there's a second principle here about opposition. Not only do we see gospel progress being a threat to ungodly commerce, but gospel progress is a threat to world religions. It's a threat to world religions. Look what Demetrius says here in verse 27. There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So Demetrius is saying this, the more folks that become followers of the way, the more folks that follow Jesus Christ, the less folks there are to worship Artemis. And, And she may lose her place of prominence in this area. People may stop coming to see the temple. They may stop coming to worship this this goddess. And so here, Demetrius is talking about the very real possibility that as the gospel spreads, people will turn away from their religion of worshiping this goddess. And we know that's the case. When the gospel goes forth, listen to me, and people are saved. They respond to Jesus Christ. That means that more and more people are going to turn away from their false beliefs. Or let me say it like this. When the Spirit of God opens people's eyes, they see the hopelessness of idolatry. He says there, hey, Paul's saying that gods made with human hands aren't gods at all. And that's the conclusion people come to when their eyes are opened by the Spirit. Hey, this thing I made with my hand, it's not a God. I can't have peace uh, from worshiping this man-made thing. I can't have fulfillment from worshiping this man-made thing. And and when their eyes are opened by the Spirit of God, they turn from their idolatry and they turn from the hopelessness of works-based religion. Let me say it like this. Every religion out there, except for biblical Christianity, is bound together by one thing, every religion. When you boil them down, they're all based on works. It's all about what can I do to make myself acceptable to whatever deity I worship? What can I do to be saved? What can I do to be spared from judgment? It's all about doing the right things, performing the right way, achieving things so that they can be right with their God. And when the Spirit of God invades an area as the gospel goes forth and people's eyes are open, they see how hopeless it is to try to work your way to salvation. And they see, based upon the good news of Jesus Christ, that our only hope is grace. You see, biblical Christianity teaches we are not saved by achieving, we are saved by believing. We're not saved because we're climbing the ladder to God. We're saved because he came to us. We are saved by placing our faith and trust, not in our own works and abilities and achievements. We are saved by placing our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He died on the cross for our sins. Oh, my sin, the the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is is nailed to the cross and and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Aren't you glad that Jesus paid it all? And I'm not saved by doing things. I'm saved because it's already been done. I'm saved by placing my faith in Christ. And when people hear that good news, you're saved by receiving that free gift of forgiveness of grace in Christ. 
They see just how hopeless world religions are. When the gospel invades an area, more and more people turn away from their false religion. And that's a threat to the people that lead those religions. And when they see more and more people turning away from their religion, they're going to oppose the gospel. That's what's going to happen. Gospel progress is a threat to world religions. I was just uh, in an area of the world recently uh, with uh, Jason, and in, in, in that area of the world, the top government leader is about tradition, and he doesn't want things to change in his nation. And that includes religion. And so he doesn't want anyone trying to convert anybody else from the, the majority religion of that area. And so persecution is intensifying because there are leaders who do not want to see people turn away from that predominant religion to Christianity. And this is real. This stuff is really happening in 2016. Gospel progress will affect world religions, and that causes persecution. And so we've seen how gospel progress can affect things, which leads to our third truth. Gospel progress will not go unopposed. Because it affects those making their living off of sin and vice, because it affects those who lead different religions and cults and, 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 and beliefs, gospel progress will not go Unopposed. Look what it says there in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the silversmiths. And no, this is not going to be. We don't want to see people turn away from Artemis. And the city, it says in verse 29, was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. So this mob is formed and they go to the theater, which we know from archaeological evidence held about 25,000 folks. And they're gathered in this theater, and it says they drug with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So as they're, as they're forming this mob, going to the places of assembly, they see these two guys who were companions of Paul. They say, hey, you come with us, you preachers of the gospel. And they drag them along. You can imagine how dangerous this was for Aristarchus and Gaius. It says in verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, he wanted to go save his friends. The disciples would not let him. They knew that Paul, if he went into the assembly, would be in very real danger of being torn apart, torn limb from limb. And it says, even some of the Asiarchs, some of the political leaders in that city, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Don't go, Paul. You won't survive it. And it says in verse 32, Now some cried about out one thing, some another, For the assembly, the mob, was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Which is, by the way, the case with mobs. A lot of times mobs form because they see some sort of excitement and they gather together. They don't even know why they're forming, which is a very dangerous thing. You have a a group of people that are rioting and they don't even know why. It says in verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. So why did the Jews put forward Alexander to say something to this mob? Because the Jews uh, did not want to be associated with Paul. They wanted Alexander to say, hey, listen, we know Paul has a Jewish background. He's not with us, okay? We're we're not on Paul's side, so don't take out your wrath upon us. This is Alexander, verse 33, was motioning with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, now remember the Jews 
uh, worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not worship Artemis, and so they saw the Jews as enemies of Artemis. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Now, I was thinking about how extraordinary this was, that this mob, this crowd, thousands of people were shouting the same thing for two hours. And I was trying to think how we could get our mind around that. Then I remembered that I'm talking to folks that ring cowbells for several hours and chant hotty toddy for several hours. So if anybody understands making noise for several hours, it's you, all right? It is. Now, I said that in the first service and offended some folks. Uh, a guy came back to the reception room and he said, what about the tomahawk chop? And I said, well, that's different. We know, don't, hey, football fans, we know how to make noise for several hours, right? They're making noise for several hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can imagine now just seriously how scary this was. I mean, here Gaius and Aristarchus, preachers of the gospel, friends of Paul, and this crowd is whipped into a frenzy, shouting the same thing over and over and over and over. Why? Gospel progress will not go unopposed. Now, I want you to hear something very important. Opposition to the gospel takes many forms. In this passage, it takes the form of a riot, a mob. And opposition takes many different forms, but ultimately, it is all satanic. It's all driven by the enemy who does not want to see people saved. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, it, it mentions that we are to be aware of the schemes of the devil. And Ephesians 6 says we need to understand that our war is not with flesh and blood, but it's against principalities. The, the forces of darkness and wickedness who are led by Satan himself. And behind all opposition to the gospel, Satan is there. He dramatically wants to stop the spread of the good news. Over in Revelation chapter 12, the Bible speaks of the, the, the devil trying to destroy Israel, who's pictured by a woman, and her seed, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he didn't, he didn't succeed in destroying Israel or the Messiah. So it says at the end of chapter 12 that the devil flew into a rage. And he is raging until he's thrown in the lake of fire. He is raging against Christianity. He's raging against the spread of the gospel. And all opposition to the gospel is ultimately satanic. So gospel progress will not go unopposed. You've probably heard the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and four colleagues of his and their families went to the jungles in Ecuador in the early 1900s, more, more closer to the middle part of the 1900s. And they were targeting this group of tribal people who had no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And eventually they were able to, to land their plane on the river and they landed and pulled up to a sandbar and they were on that sandbar to make camp and try to engage these tribal people with the gospel. And these people reacted very violently. They came out with spears and, and these five men were martyred for preaching Jesus. It's a story that's been memorialized in books and even uh, on the, the, the big screen the story of Jim Elliott and his colleagues. And that's a reminder that when the gospel infiltrates a new area, there will be a price to pay. 
And, and, and Jim Elliott's story is proof positive of that. So gospel progress will not go unopposed, which leads to the fourth thing. All right? So how are we supposed to respond when we're opposed? How are we supposed to respond when we face opposition? Well, here it is. When we face opposition, we should seek God's protection and deliverance. When we face opposition, we should seek God's protection and deliverance. Look what it says there in verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? They believed that the stone that was in the center of the temple was, fell from heaven. Some even speculate it was a meteorite. And they say, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And so this this city official stands up and and talks some sense into the mob and says, hey, we could be charged by the Romans who control us of rioting. And and the penalty would be severe. And so he sends them home and Aristarchus and Gaius are saved from the unruly mob. So what do we learn from that? When we are facing opposition, we should seek God's protection and deliverance. Now, let me tell you two ways that God can protect and deliver his people. Number one, God can provide supernatural protection. Over in Acts chapter 18, the Lord appears to Paul in a vision when he's in Corinth. He says, hey, Paul, don't be scared. Keep on preaching. No one's going to touch you. And for two years, Paul in Corinth preaches the gospel And no one harms him. Why? God's hand of protection was on Paul. This is supernatural protection. God did not allow anyone to harm Paul in the city of Corinth. Think of other stories of supernatural protection in God's word. I I thought about the book of Daniel. And I thought about Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And by the way, they'd be horrified if they knew we referred to them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their, those were their given Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. So, so if they knew we were calling them by their Babylonian names, they'd be like, oh, use our Hebrew names, please. But anyway, they, uh, they were in uh, Babylon taken into captivity, and they were commanded to bow down and, and worship uh, a false god, ultimately to worship the, the king, and they do not bow down. They, they do not bow down to the demands of the king, and he is infuriated. And so the king orders them thrown into a fiery furnace. And the Bible records that the furnace is so hot that the people who throw them in there are consumed by the heat. That's pretty hot, right? And they're thrown into the fire, and the king and his court are looking in, and they see these three Hebrew young men walking around in the fire. And then they look a little closer, and they see a fourth person walking around in the fire, who I believe is Jesus Christ, walking around in that fiery furnace with them. And God, in that moment, is providing for them 
supernatural protection from harm. God can absolutely do that. Amen? I believe that when we face intimidating circumstances, when we face possible harm and threat, we should call out to God and say, God, would you supernaturally protect your people? God can deliver by those means. But let me tell you another way that God can protect and deliver his people. God can use the existing laws and authorities. That's what happens here in Acts chapter 19. God uses the civil authorities and and the threat of Roman involvement to calm down the crowd to deliver the Christians in this instance. I believe that's why Romans 13 tells us that, that God ordains government authorities to to punish the evil one, to punish the lawbreakers, to protect people from evil. And that's why uh, we as a church, we are strong supporters of our law enforcement. I'm grateful, aren't you, for law enforcement? The folks that keep us safe and watch over us and protect us and punish the evildoer. I'm so grateful for those in our area and we support them and pray for them and want to minister to them. But Romans 13 says that the government is, is ordained by God to provide this protection for its citizens. I believe that's why over in 1 Timothy 2, we are commanded to pray for, for kings, for those in authority, so that they can have the wisdom to provide the necessary setting for people to live peaceable, godly lives, so that we can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what happens in Acts 19. The town clerk steps up, and the town clerk wants to say something to the mob. Now, the town clerk was the executive officer of the civic assembly, he would draft decrees to be brought before the assembly to vote on, and when they voted on a decree or a law, he would engrave it uh, in uh, metal. It would be passed and uh, ratified as a law. And this town clerk was the liaison between the local government of Ephesus and the Roman uh, provincial authorities. And if there was rioting in Ephesus, probably the Romans would hold him responsible for letting this happen. And they might impose severe penalties on the city. That's why he stands up and does his best to calm folks down. He addressed them and said, listen, if we riot, the Romans could intervene. And that could be severe. So God uses existing authorities, existing laws to protect the Christians here in this passage. And that's one of the ways God can protect us from opposition. But here's a question. What if laws are enacted that are anti-Christian? What if our freedom of religion is affected? What if there's a price to pay for following Christ and standing on the truth of God's word? I want you to understand, I'm not talking about 20 years from now, 30 years from now, back when I first started preaching, we could talk about 20, 30 years. But right now, we're talking about immediately, there are going to be consequences for doing the right thing. Consequences for following Christ. There are going to be consequences. When your pastor stands up and says that God has ordained that marriage be between one man and one woman until death alone should part them. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's not radical. That's what people have believed for centuries. But there's going to be a price to pay. What if the government says, you don't get a tax write-off for giving anymore? 
Or your church doesn't get tax-exempt status anymore. It's going to be economic first. There's going to be a price to pay for standing for truth, for standing on the Word of God. So the question is, what if that happens? What if our freedom of religion is stripped away? What if we suffer economic sanctions and even physical intimidation and threat for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and standing upon the truth of the Word of God? What then? What if we don't see supernatural deliverance? What if we're not protected by the laws of the land? What if we suffer harm for taking the good news to the, to the very ends of the earth? What then? Here's what I want you to understand. God can use our suffering for the accelerated spread of the gospel. Yes, we pray for protection. Yes, we pray for deliverance. But if God should allow us to go through deep waters, if God should allow us to suffer, we trust that God will use our suffering to accelerate the the expansion of the gospel. We see it all throughout the Bible. Over in Acts chapter 8, there's a great persecution against Christians. And it says they're spread out all over the place because of the persecution. And it says everywhere they went, scattered, they preach the gospel. So as they tried to, to, to stop the spread of Christianity, they were, just, they were just fanning Christianity into flame and began to spread like wildfire. Over in Acts chapter 12, James was beheaded for preaching Christ. The, 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 the authorities were trying to stop Christianity in Jerusalem, but what happened? It just continued to spread. They could not stop it. Here's what the Bible and human history tell us. Every time someone tries to stamp out Christianity, it just spreads all the faster. Every time. So what's going to happen if those in authority in our nation want to stamp out Christianity? They will be doing Christianity a favor because they cannot stop it. Every time it's tried to be stamped out, the gospel spreads like wildfire. That's why I believe that the finest days of the American church are ahead of us. Because as as persecution intensifies in our nation, as the church is purified and we get serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ and following him wherever he leads, we will see a new power in our culture and we will reach people like we've never reached people before. I believe that day's coming. Because listen to me, the darker and darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. Amen? And I believe, hey, there's going to be a price to pay for following Christ. But God will use our suffering. He will use our hardship to see the gospel explode through our land. I really believe that day is coming. So yes, we pray for protection and deliverance. But we also trust that if we do go through hard times, God will use it for the spread of the gospel and for his glory. Jim Elliott is a good example. Jim Elliott and his four colleagues were martyred for preaching Christ. But guess what happened next? The wives of these martyred men, I can't imagine how difficult this was, went back to that tribe to share that same good news with them. And the the people were so overwhelmed that these ladies would love them even though they had just killed their husbands, that they heard them out. 
And folks started to be saved among this tribe. And even today, there are many Christians in Ecuador as a result of the witness of these missionaries and their wives. They tried to stop it with spears. But guess what? It just spread more powerfully through the wives of these martyred men. And I can't even begin to speculate as to how many people have been touched by that story. It's been in books. It's been on the movie screen. How many people have given their their lives to follow Christ wherever he leads with courage and boldness, knowing he will use their life even through hardships. I, I, I bet thousands have been inspired to go to the mission field because of the story of Jim Elliott. And so... Even when we suffer, God will use it. Here's my point. Here's what I want you to walk away with. We should expect opposition. As the gospel spreads, opposition will come, just like it did in Acts chapter 19 and all throughout the book of Acts. But we should also endure opposition in light of the ultimate triumph of the gospel. Expect it, but endure it. Because we know that when it's all said and done and the dust settles on human history, Jesus Christ alone will be exalted. Amen? He wins. The gospel triumphs. So don't don't wither and, 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 and fade away when times get hard. Be a bold, courageous, grace-filled, loving witness of the good news and God will use it for His glory. I read an article this week about lodgepole pines. Lodgepole pines are interesting. They're found in great numbers in California. And the reason they're well known is because they're the first trees that begin to reseed an area after a forest fire has come through and wreaked its havoc. And here's why lodgepole pines are the first ones to reseed an area. Their pine cones are... are uh, their pine cones surround the seed in the pine cone with a type of pitch. And so the seed in the pine cone is protected from the wildfire. And the wildfire basically burns the pitch away. But after the wildfire has passed through, the seed is ready to fall and to grow more trees. This is a really extraordinary thing, these lodgepole pines. The seeds are, you say it like this, the seeds are dormant until they're needed after a crisis. The opposition of the extreme heat brings about the release of the life-giving seeds so that, so that reforesting can begin. Isn't that awesome? And I believe that's a picture of the church. That when the heat of persecution, when the heat of opposition comes our direction, we are at that moment not withered and fading away. We are ready to plant life-giving seeds of the good news of Jesus Christ to reach people with the gospel. So opposition is a hard thing, but it can be a good thing as it prepares us to give life.